This audiobook is produced by the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales in partnership with the Catholic Truth Society. Welcome to CTS Audio, where faith comes through listening. Victims of the Nazis, Edith Stein by Monk Matthew, read by Monica Nash. Edith Stein was a German Jewess who descended to the intellectual heights of atheism, was converted to Roman Catholicism, and as a discalced Carmelite nun, ascended to Mount Carmel to the crystal peaks of mysticism. Her life on earth ended in the gas chambers of a Nazi concentration camp, which she entered unresisting as an oblation for her race. Spiritually a giant, in body she was small and frail and insignificant. At first meeting she often disappointed those who had known her only by her fame as a major contemporary philosopher. She will also be known as a very great discalced Carmelite. But most of all, perhaps, she will be known as a saint for converts. Early Life Edith Stein was born on the Feast of St. Wilfred, the 12th of October, 1891, in the then German town of Breslau, now Wrocław in Poland. She was the youngest of seven children whose natural gaiety was moderated by an aura of culture, learning and the strict respectability which Germany shared with Victorian England. The Stein family was wealthy and middle class. Herr Stein had a timber business. In their large, richly furnished home, under the dominant influence of a devout mother, every appropriate ceremonial of the Talmud, the rabbinic laws and teachings, was precisely observed. Grace was said in Hebrew, prayers were regularly offered, and religious customs were precisely carried out. A deeply religious, happy, prosperous, respected and cultured German family, it exhibited the Jewish regard for learning and position. Suddenly, Edith's father died. She was three years old, too young perhaps to know the depths of tragedy and no doubt sheltered from grief by brothers, sisters, relations. Dependency on God, and only God, which is the all of discalced Carmelite spirituality, may have been planted at this time. Even a three-year-old can experience subconscious shock. Her mother, who had been all things at all times to the little child, now, suddenly and without the explanation such a little one could comprehend, had to break off much of their earlier indulgent relationship. Suddenly it was the elder sister to whom Edith had to turn for her needs and wants. Suddenly it was aunties and cousins who were dressing her neatly and taking her for the daily afternoon walks and picnics and visits to the town's crumbling ramparts and beautiful gardens, or to hear the band playing in the park. Her mother, she was not to know, was immersing herself in learning and running the timber business, which was to prosper mightily under her busy and efficient drive. At first, Edith seemed to have filled some of the gap by playing more with other children, 
but she was a small, pale and delicate child towards whom more robust playmates behaved condescendingly. So she turned increasingly to her sisters. They were diligent students, much given to home studies and learning, and taking her own part in this sort of activity quickly became the child's major conscious motivation and ambition. She also had her mother's drive and clever mind. When she was no more than four years old, Edith was giving vent to such thoughts as whoever lies once is never believed, even when he speaks the truth. In the years that followed, her god was intellectual achievement. It was that which had her respect. It was on that her drive, effort and ambition focused. It was in that she sought praise and recognition. From the age of four, she spent the whole of her school life at the best and most modern school, Victoria School on the outskirts of Breslau. From the outset, she was recognised as being unusually advanced for her age. Hard-working as well as gifted, and possessing an iron will, she went on shining throughout her school years. In the senior college, where exceptionally stiff entrance examinations meant that all the pupils were extremely gifted, Edith Stein was some way above all others in ability and knowledge. This is not to say that she was a hard, thrusting little go-getter. On the contrary, biographies show in these early years a warm and loving nature, always patient, kind and helpful, taking part in the school's social amusements and having that sympathetic aura which meant that, as one contemporary put it, you could tell her all your troubles and secrets, and she was always earnest with advice and gentle with help, and any confidence was safe with her. She had, in short, that rare combination, intellectual brilliance and a warm gift for friendship. Atheism and Philosophy Spiritually, however, she was causing her mother concern. Frau Stein confided to friends, Edith is clever but not pious, with no religious convictions and showing little interest in Judaism. True, when at home on vacation, she went to the synagogue and joined in the scrupulously observed rituals of the home out of a deep devotion to her mother. But we know from Edith Stein herself that at this period she considered herself an atheist. She looked from afar and with awe on the famed intellects of the time, including Dr. Carl Stern, professor of philosophy at Breslau University, Edmund Husserl, inventor of a whole new branch of philosophy, and Max Scheler, famous throughout Europe for the power and brilliance of his lectures. But the spiritual inner life which Christ was later to bring to perfection can be seen in retrospect to have been nourished through childhood by her unconscious absorption of the values of the deeply religious home, infused and nurtured by the devout example, prayer and petitions of her mother. From the Breslau Girls' College, young Edith passed to Breslau University. She entered the philosophy school where one of her idols, Carl Stern, was professor. He and Edith were immediately attracted to each other, and it is significant that although neither of them knew it at the time, Stern, another Jew, was also travelling Edith's road. Some years later, he too was to become a Roman Catholic. If it were an isolated incident, it may not be very convincing as evidence of the hand of God in Edith Stein's spiritual development, but there are many other examples of the workings of providence in her life. After two years, Edith transferred to what, in those atheist days, was regarded as the temple of free thought, 
the famous Göttingen University, where it was said, philosophy is talked day and night, at table and on the street, everywhere. Before long, she was a personal friend of, and was being treated as an equal by, the professor whom she had long regarded as the philosopher of our day, Edmund Husserl. Approaching Conversion Hiking with friends one day through the mountains, Dusk found them near a farmhouse where they lodged overnight. In the morning, the owner and his workmen, as was their habit, gathered in prayer before setting off to their tasks. She was later to say this first glimpse of the Roman Catholic faith made a deep impression on her. Soon after this, Max Scheler gave a series of lectures to the Philosophical Society which Edith attended. Max was a Roman Catholic first and a philosophy lecturer second, and his philosophy lectures were so well developed that, as Edith wrote, he propagated Catholic ideas with all the brilliance of his intellect and power of expression. This was contact with a world which had so far remained unknown to me. She was not yet ready for the faith, but it opened up for me a whole region of phenomena which I could no longer ignore. Her conversion was being moulded in the inner depths of the soul, but at the outer level of the intellect, she did not immediately make time to look further into the claims which God, through Max Scheler, had set in motion. What happened, she says, is that it brought doubts to her atheism and eventually put rationalist prejudice to flight. One of Edith's professors was a certain Adolf Reinach. In 1914, he volunteered for the war and went to the trenches. Edith, quite independently, dropped her studies and joined the Red Cross, where the compassion, patience and warm helpfulness, which had marked her earlier years, became further developed through caring for the sick and wounded in a hospital for patients with contagious diseases. She did this for two years. Professor Reinach and his young wife were both Catholic converts. When he was killed on the Western Front in 1917, his young widow requested Edith to come and arrange her late husband's philosophy papers. Edith readily went to the house, expecting, with her inbred Jewish attitude to death, to find a woman broken and desolate with sorrow. Instead, she found this young convert from Judaism calm and quietly joyful in the strength and inner peace of Christ's revelations and promises. We can see God's influence in this, and so in time could Edith. Four years later, she wrote... It was then that I first encountered the cross and the divine strength which it inspires in those who bear it. For the first time I saw before my eyes the church, born of Christ's redemptive suffering, victorious over the sting of death. It was the moment in which my unbelief was shattered, Judaism paled, and Christ streamed out upon me, Christ in the mystery of the cross." That, however, was written from the rarefied mystical heights she went on to ascend. At the time, she remained unaware. She had, in 1916, accepted the position of assistant to the professor under whom she had earlier taken her doctorate of philosophy, the renowned Husserl, now professor of philosophy at the University of Freiburg. She caused a sensation in the world of philosophers with a brilliant essay on Plant Soul, Animal Soul, Human Soul which shocked her atheist friends because it showed that she was no longer a rationalist. It revealed a revival of faith in God. Deeper Stirrings Of this period, she was later to write, 
My soul, yet unrecognized, was as earth without water, thirsting for the living waters of truth. I had not then begun to pray, but this longing for truth was a prayer in itself. But the inner preparation was nearing fulfillment. Her conversion was now imminent. Like St. Augustine with his famous enlightenment in a garden, many converts see in retrospect some particular incident or experience which marks their conversion, and Edith Stein is no exception. At Freiburg, she was often invited by colleague Dr. Conrad Martius and husband to spend weekends on their fruit farm at Bergsaben, where Edith enjoyed fruit picking and generally mucking in with the family. The Conrad Martius family, although Protestants, appeared to have a good number of Roman Catholic books in their bookcases. One can almost see God influencing these people to buy The Life of St. Teresa of Avila, written by herself, influencing the friendship between them and Edith, influencing them to be called urgently away during this weekend Edith was staying with them, and influencing Mrs. Martius to hurry away with the parting invitation to Edith, left alone in the farmhouse, to help herself to any book she wanted from the bookcase. Edith tells us, I picked at random and took out a large volume. I began to read it, was at once captivated, and did not stop until I reached the end. As I closed the book, I said, That is the truth. It was St. Teresa's life. A remarkable thing happened that weekend when you consider that, at the conscious level, Edith was by now a former atheist groping around in the uncertain world of agnosticism. Consider the spirituality of St. Teresa. It is of the highest order of mysticism. It is the language of the soul, and it communicates itself only to those in whom spirituality is alive, even if, as in Edith's case at the time, that inner life is unrecognized by the conscious mind. This says much about the inner preparation which had been going on within, for the incident of Edith's weekend with St. Teresa, as with St. Augustine's garden and the incidents which mark the moment of conversion for many, many converts, was the moment of emergence of a God-awareness which had been alive and building up towards fruition beneath an enclosing outer crust for many years. We can see, too, that God now brought into play the other qualities he had allowed to develop within her. Her perfectionism, her singularity of purpose, would henceforth centre on Christ. She had found the treasure hidden in a field, Matthew 13, verse 44, and all else would shrink to relative unimportance. She had found the true and eternal object of her abundance of love, and the world-centred values of her intellectual atheism were revealed in all their dark emptiness. Things that had been of supreme value were of no value, and that which had been of no value would now assume supreme value. Baptism From that weekend onwards, Edith Stein became the complete convert, living for Christ alone, and her singularity and extremism, a characteristic of all the saints, at once made her want to reject the world totally. She wanted to enter a discalced Carmelite convent without delay, and gave herself wholly to the solitary contemplative way mapped by St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross, travelling alone through prayer and contemplation towards the mystical condition. It was late into the night at the fruit farm when she finished absorbing the impact of her experience, and first thing next morning she went into the town and bought a Roman Catholic catechism and a missal. Her fine mind quickly mastered their meaning. 
and there is something delightfully innocent in the way she set off, as soon as she had finished reading, to the Roman Catholic Church in Bergsaben to ask for baptism. When she got to the church, Mass was about to begin, and the reality of the preparation that had been going on within is again evidenced in her comment, It was the first time I had ever been in a Catholic church, but nothing was strange to me. I understood even the smallest ceremonies. After Mass, she followed the priest, a saintly-looking old man, she calls him, into the presbytery and astonished him by quite simply asking for baptism there and then. He protested that it was necessary to be instructed and greatly prepared before being received into the church. How long have you been receiving instruction and who has been giving it? The only answer Edith could think of was, please, your reverence, test my knowledge. A theological discussion followed with the priest becoming progressively more amazed not just by this frail Jewess's knowledge of the doctrines of the Catholic Church, which she had absorbed from the catechism and missal she had brought, but by her understanding and feeling for Christ. The discussion ended in a firm arrangement that Edith Stein would be received into the church on the 1st of January 1922. She spent the entire preceding night in prayers of preparation, and early in the morning our Lord received her through the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion. For her baptismal name she chose Teresa. The brilliant intellectual and learned philosopher was now an obedient child of the Church. She went now to do what she was to describe as the most painful thing she had to face during her entire life on earth, to confront her mother, whom she loved deeply, with the news that she had been converted to Christ. Her mother wept. It was the first time her children had ever seen their mother weep. Edith wept with her. She stayed at home for six months, of which time her mother was to tell an intimate friend, I have never seen anyone pray like Edith. She was praying, she tells us, that the unity of this loving Stein family would not be broken. Teaching at a convent school Then, on Candlemas Day, 1922, Edith Stein was confirmed in the cathedral at Speyer, where God had ready and waiting for her the spiritual director for the next phase of her progress, one Canon Schwind. Taking the name Teresa in baptism was more than admiration or gratitude to the great foundress of the Order of Discalced Carmelites, whose influence had opened Edith's spiritual eyes. Rather, it was an immediate affinity with the saint's spirituality, and Edith yearned only to enter Carmel. Part of her testing must surely have been the anguish of our Lord's apparent rebuff to this plan, for Canon Schwind would not hear of it, but advised her instead to apply for the position of principal teacher in the Dominican convent school at Speyer, which had fallen vacant. Thus, in the world's eyes, she plunged from the high office of professor of philosophy at a renowned university to a relatively lowly task at a girls' training college for teachers. She accepted this as God's will for her, and we can see how God was, in fact, answering her prayer. At the convent school, it was arranged that she would have her own room. Here she studied, wrote and prayed. She had the chapel for daily mass and for the hours she spent in prayer to Our Lady of Sorrows, and before long she was adopting the way of life of the sisters who held her in high esteem. Here she had the time and facilities she needed for study, and what she chose to study was the work of St Thomas Aquinas. 
Her subsequent writings on St Thomas made such an impact on the Roman Catholic world that she was besieged to give lectures and won a new fame as a speaker and Catholic writer. This was her life for the next five years, while beneath it all she yearned for betrothal to Christ and the life of exclusive devotion to him in a contemplative's convent. But every time she spoke of this singular desire to Canon Schwind, his only answer was, the time is not yet right. The Maturing of Her Faith in Christ In September 1927, Canon Schwind died, and we can again see the influence of God in the new confessor who was to guide her along the next phase of the path to perfection. It happened like this. At Easter 1928, Edith went to spend Holy Week at the Benedictine Abbey of Boiron. The Abbey was noted for the prominent part it was playing in the liturgical movement of the time. Its abbot was Father Raphael Walzer, and he at once became her new spiritual director. From Abbot Raphael, we receive a first impression which gives a startling measure of the process of conversion. In the seven years since she had become a Catholic, Edith Stein had so nourished herself on God's graces and so submitted to his guidance that Abbot Raphael could record, I have seldom met a soul which united so many excellent qualities. She was simplicity and naturalness personified. She was completely a woman, gentle and even maternal without ever wanting to mother anyone, gifted with mystical graces in the truest sense of the word. She never gave any sign of affectation or a sense of superiority. She was simple with simple people, learned with the learned, yet without presumption, an inquirer with inquirers and, I would like to add, a sinner with sinners. Another monk, Father Zeringer, was given the gift of seeing her soul, it would seem, for he wrote, When I saw her for the first time in a corner of the entrance to Boiron, her appearance and attitude made an impression on me which I can only compare with that of the pictures of the Ecclesia Orans, the praying church, in the oldest ecclesiastical art of the catacombs. And this was no mere chance fancy. She was in truth a type of that Ecclesia standing in the world of time and yet apart from it, and knowing nothing else in the depths of her union with Christ but the Lord's words, For them do I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. At ground level, Edith continued her duties as teacher and was kept busy travelling in response to mounting demands for her lectures, additionally burning much midnight oil writing essays on her fresh insights into old truths. For two years she was thus occupied, while everything in her craved to leave it all and give herself solely to Christ in the contemplative isolation of a discalced Carmelite convent. During the Christmas of 1930, Edith was at Boiron, and she again approached her confessor, the abbot, about entering the religious order. Like Canon Schwind, Abbot Raphael was to advise that the time had not yet come to take such a step, and urged her instead to use her great talents in giving lectures and in literary work for the glory of God and in the cause of Catholic truth. Throughout 1931, and well into 1932, she gave lectures arranged by Catholic colleges and societies all over Germany and Switzerland. In the spring of 32, she moved in with the Sisters of Notre Dame, 
who ran the Collegium Marianarum at Munster. Here again we have a first impression which provides some evidence of the holiness which was developing within. One of the student nuns wrote, In spite of her frail constitution, Edith Stein kept a strict fast even when engaged in strenuous intellectual work. She already practised monastic asceticism. If she could arrange it so that she could hear three masses in succession, she could be seen throughout them all kneeling reverently upright, never leaning, never sitting. Or again, a Swiss woman who frequently went into one of the churches Edith used wrote, She would pray for hours before Our Lady of Sorrows. I could never understand it. But now, years later with hindsight, I have come to think that Edith Stein not only prayed to have sufferings, but also had intimations that she would travel the road of suffering. The desire to suffer for God's sake is something which perhaps only the very holy can comprehend. Edith Stein by now had that desire. On her way to spend Easter with her spiritual director at Boiron, she broke her journey at Cologne on Holy Thursday to make the holy hour at the Carmelite convent in that town. Of that hour she wrote, I spoke to our Saviour and told him that I knew that it was his cross which was now being laid on the Jewish people. Most of them did not understand it. But those who did understand must accept it willingly in the name of all. I wanted to do that. Let him only show me how. When the service was over, I had an interior conviction that I had been heard. But in what the bearing of the cross was to consist, I did not yet know. The cross she wanted to bear was to be an oblation of herself for the salvation of the Jewish people. We are now in the mid-1930s. Hitler was on the rampage, and the persecution of the Jews was gaining momentum. The awesome reality of the persecution of Jews through the centuries, and particularly of Hitler's crescendo of vileness against her people, was seen by Edith Stein in clear perspective. Her intense love for Christ was permeated with a profound sorrow and pity for her race, and her burning desire to take a share in his suffering is perhaps the key to the persistent moves in our time for her canonization. But even now she was not ready for the enclosed life. She resumed her journey to Boiron and asked Abbot Walzer if the time had not yet come when she could enter Carmel. Once again she was dissuaded. However, conditions in Nazi Germany were bringing a new urgency to her desires, and when she returned to Munster it was to find that the director of the college had received orders from the Nazis that Dr. Stein must discontinue her lectures. The Catholic Teachers' Union undertook to take charge of her maintenance, but she was to be led along another road. About ten days after her suspension as a lecturer, she went to Munster's Church of St. Luger for the thirteen hours of prayer devoted to the Feast of the Good Shepherd. She went straight up to Christ in the tabernacle and told him, I will not leave till I see clearly whether I may now enter Carmel. The flooding of her soul with his consent came as the last blessing was being given. She left the church and immediately set about arranging an interview with the prioress of the discalced Carmelite convent at Cologne. Again she met with resistance. The prioress at the interview was reluctant to accept the responsibility of taking out of the world one whose fame and intellectual brilliance had so much to offer mankind, to which Edith replied, It is not human activity that can help us, but the passion of Christ. It is a share in that that I desire.
A Discalced Carmelite at Last On the 15th of April 1934, Edith Stein became a Bride of Christ, and with the habit of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, she retained the name Teresa, that she may receive the patronage of the great Saint of Avila, and Benedicta, in gratitude to the graces she received in the Benedictine Abbey of Boiron. Of the cross was added from her free desire to share in her Lord's sufferings. In May 1936, Sister Teresa Benedicta of the Cross received word that her mother was dying. Frau Stein, in the event, lingered through the summer, and on the 14th of September, the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, when the whole discalced Carmelite order renews its vows at one hour before dawn, her mother died. Edith wrote... As I was standing in my place in choir waiting to renew my vows, my mother was beside me. I felt her presence quite distinctly. Soon after Frau Stein's death, Edith experienced great joy when her sister Rosa told her that she too wanted to be converted to Christ. Edith had prayed much for her sister, and religion had been discussed whenever the sisters met. Rosa had known a desire for the faith for some time, but she had held back in deference to their much-loved mother. Now she took formal instruction, and as soon as she had arranged the family affairs, she was received into the church at Cologne on Christmas Eve 1936, making her first communion at midnight mass. By now, the Nazis' persecution of Jews was in full flood, as well as attacks on all things sacred, including convents and monasteries. The nuns feared for Sister Teresa Benedicta, and secretly made arrangements to have her transferred to the Carmelite convent at Echt in Holland. But Sister Teresa Benedicta's spirituality had moved, by now, to a high mystical level. This is reflected in a note which she scribbled on the back of a postcard the night a doctor, a friend of the convent, drove her, for a change of air, in fact over the border into Holland. It reads, Dear Mother, I beg your reverence's permission to offer myself to the heart of Jesus as a sacrificial expiation for the sake of true peace, that the Antichrist's sway may be broken. I am asking this today because it is already the twelfth hour. I know that I am nothing, but Jesus wills it, and he will call many more to the same sacrifice in these days. It is dated Passion Sunday, 26th of March, 1939. In another note, she wrote of the Nazi horrors being inflicted on the Jews. It is the shadow of the cross which is falling on my people, she wrote. If only they would see this. At the convent in Holland, her life continued, by now buoyant in the spirit, perfectly at peace in the harbour of the divine will, as she herself put it. Her days now a constancy of contemplative prayer, strict fasting, meditation, spiritual reading contemplation, writing, and more prayer centred on a deep love of the Mass. Reluctantly, she was, from time to time, dragged out of the spiritual condition by worldly intrusions. There was her concern for her sister Rosa, who had made her escape to Belgium, penniless in a strange country whose language she did not know. There was the necessary entanglement in the ways of the world to arrange Rosa's passport to Holland, and relief, no doubt, when Rosa eventually arrived at Echt in the summer of 1940. There, Rosa was given a room outside the convent enclosure, received into the Third Order of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, 
and henceforth the two sisters spent long hours every day in prayer and contemplation in the convent chapel. The Nazis close in. There was the Gestapo. In February 1941, the discalced Carmelite and other convents were invaded by the Gestapo, who ordered all the nuns to leave at once. Many of the sisters were frightened, and to them Sister Teresa Benedicta said, If we are driven out into the street, then our Lord will send his angels to encircle us, and their invisible wings will enfold us in a peace more secure than that of the highest and most solid convent walls. Certainly we ought to pray that we may be spared this experience, but only with the deeply sincere addition, Not my will but thine be done. It is evident that she drew much strength from the essential discalced Carmelite spirituality, which was her road to perfection. Through a work she was writing at this time on St. John of the Cross, she developed a close spiritual companionship with this great saint, and after immersing herself in his vision of the cross and his imprisonment in Toledo, she wrote, To be helplessly delivered up to the wickedness of embittered enemies, tortured in body and soul, cut off from all human consolation and even from the sources of power in the sacramental life of the Church, could there be a harder school of the cross? She knew that she would die for Christ. Indeed, that was her desire. Had she so chosen, she may quite possibly have done otherwise, for arrangements were set underway by well-meaning friends for her and her sister Rosa to go to the safety of a Carmel in Switzerland. And if Sister Teresa Benedicta had applied herself, with her customary sense of purpose, to these arrangements, she would almost certainly have gone there. But she did nothing to hurry the formalities, and in May 1942, both sisters were summoned to appear before the Gestapo. When she entered the room, Sister Teresa Benedicta greeted her Nazi interrogators with the words, Praised be Jesus Christ. Coming from one they saw as a Jewess, this apparently bemused the Gestapo men. When they got over it, they roughly demanded identity cards, shouted that they were not in order, and subjected the sisters to a pitiless examination then let them go back to their convent. For three months, nothing happened. Then, on the 2nd of August, 1942, uniformed men burst into the convent and arrested the sisters. They were given ten minutes to pack, and when they were roughly bustled into the police van, they found other victims already there. It transpired that all non-Aryan members of every Dutch religious community were arrested that day, as a reprisal for a pastoral letter from the Archbishop of Utrecht, which had been read in all Roman Catholic churches, protesting against the treatment of the Jews. The police van took them to a transit camp at Amersfoort. Three days later, the nuns back in the convent received information that the sisters were at Westerbrook camp and that they needed warm clothing, blankets and medicine. Amid tears and prayers, the community made up parcels, and two men who delivered them were able, by the courtesy of the Dutch police, to talk to the sisters in private. Sister Teresa Benedicta told them that there were ten nuns in their hut, and that the German commandant had ordered that the Catholic Jews be isolated from the non-Catholics. Sister Teresa Benedicta was perfectly calm and composed, the two men reported. She was happy that she was able to help and comfort the prisoners by words and prayer, her deep faith created about her an atmosphere of confidence, and she said, Whatever happens, I am prepared for it. Our dear child Jesus is with us. 
Rosa was also bearing up well, encouraged and strengthened by her sister's example. Two days later, on the 7th of August, one of her former pupils waiting on the station platform at Schifferstadt heard her name being called from a slowly passing train. She recognised the voice of her old professor, Dr Stein. Give my love to the sisters of St Madalena's. I am travelling eastwards. Eastwards was a euphemism for the concentration camp Auschwitz, the gas chamber and death. She was never heard of again. The most reliable information is that she and her sister were gassed on the 9th or 10th of August 1942 and their bodies burnt. When Sister Teresa Benedicta's cell was cleared out, a small picture was found with her handwriting on the back. It read, I wish to offer my life as a sacrifice for the conversion of the Jews. Beatification and Canonization Edith Stein was beatified on the 1st of May 1987 by Pope John Paul II during his second pastoral visit to Germany. The beatification took place in the vast Mungersdorf football stadium in Cologne. Amid great celebrations and even some controversy, she was canonised by Pope John Paul II in Rome on the 11th of October 1998. The whole church celebrates her feast day on the 9th of August. St. Edith Stein, Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. <laughs>